I grew up in a kind of a non-denominational Christian home. I would find myself in Pentecostal church, uh, churches, um, Assembly of God, uh, those type of things growing up. I had a, a high school teacher that I um, was close to, had a good relationship with, um, and we would go to his house once a week. He was a Methodist pastor, and, um, and he uh, had a group called Lamplighters, Christian Bible study kind of things. But one of the things I remember the most is watching Kent Hovind videos and learning about uh, creationism. And, you know, evolution doesn't make sense because God created us. So, you know, Adam and Eve, uh, Noah's Ark was real, all those kind of things. Uh, by the time I got into college, that stuff didn't really make a lot of sense to me. I had a lot of cognitive dissonance. I was actually pretty anti-Catholic because um, I fundamentalists tend to be, uh, at least in my experience. But in my undergraduate studies and, you know, learning about the philosophy of religion and how, you know, religions evolved and things like that, um, I started to have a little bit of a crisis of faith, um, which ended up in me actually surprisingly ending up becoming Catholic. Uh, and a big part of that was that it solved a lot of that cognitive dissonance that I had. Um, I was allowed to believe in evolution. I was allowed to believe in a four point whatever billion year old earth and a however many billion year old uh, universe. And academically speaking, it made a lot more sense to me. That was the main intellectual motivator for me becoming Catholic. Um, but I was also married to a very kind of devoutly Catholic woman from a devoutly Catholic family first couple of years of our marriage struggled in the fact that we, we considered ourselves to be unevenly yoked. Now, I had spent a lot of energy trying to convert her out of Catholicism because I thought that was the path that was going to go. Um, it was kind of surprising to both of us that I ended up becoming Catholic. In my dogmatic nature, I, I took that as I went all the way with it. I became a very conservative, dogmatic, uh, traditional Catholic. I was very involved in the church and just became more and more conservative. Over time, I started having um, a new kind of dissonance, uh, not necessarily between you know the scientific understanding of the world and the universe, but now it was more on social issues. Um, I found my heart becoming more and more liberal in the sense that a lot of the groups that we were judgmental about in Catholicism, it didn't seem like that was a Christianly thing to do. Yet I could point to the specific dogma, and it was so dogmatic, I could point to the specific dogma that said I had to be, for example, of course, you know, it was LGBTQ, of course, the uh, Catholics would say, you know, we, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. But to me, that didn't ring true with the way that my courts were dealing with um, LGBTQ. It didn't seem like they loved them. It, didn't, it seemed like they were the enemy. Um, and even with that, it seemed like uh, difficult to... I just couldn't justify it. And, and I became more and more, just politically, I started becoming more and more left. And, um, but I was still very, very dogmatically Catholic. So I was finding every way I could to connect these dots and to make them work and to rationalize them. Um, and I started becoming, you know, a little bit of an oddball in my circle because I was, you know, the, the, the crazy, you know, liberal one, which by, by anyone's measure, I was not liberal. But in those circles, I was. But yet I still was able to tie it all back. But I had a lot of, a lot of inner conflict about it. Um, and I started getting to a point where I, I felt like I was losing my faith. So what I did was, I, like I did you know, way back in my early college years when I went back to the early church fathers and everything, and that's what led me to Catholicism, I went back there to, to find a way to strengthen my faith. But it wasn't there the way I remember it. It, it, was, it was there in all these stories that didn't seem to make sense. And... And I was like, all right, well, I need, to find, I need to find the historicity. I need to point to something that's real. And as soon as I can find this real thing, I can build up all my faith around it. And what I found is everywhere I looked for something that was real, that was based in historicity or science or anything that was actually demonstrably real, every single turn I took, there, there was actually nothing there. Slowly but surely, each of these things like, fell apart. And I got to the point where... I just realized, like, in the snap of a finger, it was gone. I was like, wait, I don't, I don't believe in God anymore, which if you spent your whole life believing uh, very dogmatically in God, that can be a kind of a traumatic thing. Um, I spent a year not coming out to my children. It was an agreement that my wife and I had. I think she thinks that I'm going to, like, slip back into Christianity somehow. And I think the idea was, well, don't talk to them about it in case this isn't going to stick. Um, finally, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually able to, with my wife's blessing, talk to the kids about it. I was terrified. 
because my kids are very, very conservative and they're, they're, they're great Catholics. It was hard to talk to them about it and, it, and it was it was definitely you know traumatic for the family. But my kids took it well. They 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 talked to each other. They were very supportive to each other about it. And all they could do in the end was was climb on me and give me a hug. And and that was it. And I was so surprised how much it, they weren't moved by it. In the end, it was a traumatic thing to talk about. But in the end, I'm still just their dad. So so that went about as well as it could. And that's basically where I am today. Still trying to figure out my place in the world as a new atheist. <laughs> My name is Brandon, I'm 37 years old, and I ride the Atheist Underground. There is no God. Then why are we whispering? Stand by to receive our transmission. Logic clearly dictates. If you're an atheist, scream atheist! I mean, but what is an atheist? I don't, I don't. An atheist is someone who doesn't quite believe that there is somebody out there, some god out there. Well, then to me, you're an idiot. From beautiful downtown in Philadelphia, in the state of apostasy, it's the Atheist Underground. Is your brain on vacation? Why the hell did you go and do that? Arriving in Brainford. Thank you for writing the underground. This is Brainford. Were you trying to get crazy with this thing? Don't you know I'm local? We are in Brainford. Everyone has arrived in Brainford. Brainford, you know the Fuds? That's uh, more of an Eastern thing. I think we hear here in the Midwest. We don't get town names that, that end in Ferd a whole lot. I guess there's a few, right? Well, there's a Hartford here, named after Hartford, Connecticut, I'm sure. But Water. back east, what are, yeah, Waterford. That's a pretty common name. Why there's a Waterford in most states, I think. Uh, obviously, Ford, you know, is where you cross the river. And I think that's uh, an English, more typically English derivation of town names. Uh, Ferd. So we're in Brainford. There's actually a Branford in my native Connecticut. Branford, which made me think of Brainford. Oh my God, who the hell cares? Shut up, Rhode Island. We got a full living room today, uh, marked by the return of Nikolai on science. Good to see him back here. And uh, of course, Jojo. And kicking around the mic over there is unemployed cable guy Jason back with us, along with Melanie, the ambivalent atheist. Uh, been a while since we had the uh, the whole brain trust together here. So use your fucking brains and tell me why we have Australians now going to Christchurch, New Zealand, and shooting up mosques. So this is a, a guy who is, has crossed a, a new line and put, put, basically put a camera device on his on his he- on his head while he convened this shooting, one of two shootings that were that were I guess pretty much simultaneously right into. Two places in town in in the ironically named Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, which is no capital is Wellington. I want to say right. Christchurch is the biggest city or one of the biggest cities in New Zealand, and uh, and these these uh, right wing uh, racist, openly racist gunmen uh, murdered at least fifty people, forty nine people, right today uh, as we people. record this. First of all, our hearts go out. I mean, um, nobody likes to see this crap, and again, it just points out to me. The divisiveness of religion in general ended up bringing us to a place of violence because people don't agree with that religion. And in the times, uh, as I have spoken uh, recently and been taken to task for by by members of the of the Facebook group and people who follow and and listen to the show, uh, are some of them are politically conservative and they want Trump to be such a good president so hard they think his policies are so right that they'll put up with any kind of idiocy that this guy. <laughs> unveils for us day by day. The way he carries himself and the example that he brings to the country and enables people who are racist and people who are, are haters to to go ahead and act that out. It's it's basically he basically condones the behavior by his own behavior. 
I had to think about what I said because people were like, nah, you know, you're just being a hater. But other people have observed that. It's like the leadership gives people the, the, the feeling that they can act like that. It really does. I think I'm going crazy. And that's what's going on. How does it go now to, to New Zealand? And is it only going to be English-speaking countries? Is, this, is Australia, uh, sadly, a, the little Wild West that we sort of think it is in our romantic minds? Is it also little redneck world? Is it full of racists? Is it full? Of, what what is going on? How, talk to me about what happened today in New Zealand. Anybody read? I'm waiting for the white conservative Christian travel ban. <laughs> Thing is Good on, call. It's an international terrorist issue, right? It, it, it is happens here quite a lot more than than you know we've had with Muslim terrorists. You, you know what's scary is this guy. You know his. Uh, former employer said that you know he's just a normal guy he was punctual professional and i think that's one scary things about um racism and religious extremism is that you can be normal and just out of nowhere go off on the hinge and nobody can see it coming and he certainly is an example of the new like wave of internet meme related white supremacists you know the big 8chan fans he shouted out something about uh, PewDiePie on that video before he shot up the mosque which is like that's gonna spark a whole thing because that guy's got a billion fans and are they all racists who shoot up mosques no but certainly among that fan base there's no shortage of uh, people who don't mind using violence to get their way and apparently he also live streamed the event on facebook um that's somebody in that seems to indicate somebody is looking for an audience to promote that view and get other people to do the same thing elsewhere yeah he had a uh manifesto i believe um and it said that uh in it he wrote that Donald Trump is a symbol of renewed white identity. That just gives an example that Donald Trump has been hoisted up as a hero for these people to act the way that they do. And what Donald Trump should be willing to do is stand up and say, I don't want to be somebody's hero like that. I don't want to be a symbol for the new white identity. But Trump doesn't. He he just... Sits idly by and being who he is. Well, one, he's not that articulate. Two, he still wants the people that would espouse that view here to vote for him. He knows if he loses that uh, segment of the population, he has no chance. (laughs) Well, the other thing to really put into consideration is um, the troll farms that Russia had that really were taking away other supporters for other candidates to get Trump in place. And um, so I think his fan base um, partially was also brought on through that, through the manipulation of social media. And that is, like, there is a whole underground group of uninformed people that just jump to any conspiracy theory as long as it fits whatever their preconceived notions are. And it doesn't matter how outlandish, how little proof there is, they propagate that kind of stuff. And they, they get other people to believe it. And Now I'm losing touch with reality and I'm almost out of blow. Such a fine line. I hate to see it go. Cocaine running all around my brain. There's no way to overestimate the stupidity of the public. I, you know, when I realized that, I realized that when John McCain, during the, the last campaign, had to correct a little old lady who flat out said that, that Barack Obama was a Muslim. And she was just a little old lady from Iowa, you know, sitting in the crowd at a, you know, a pre-campaign, a pre-election event. 
and she believed that wherever you know i didn't really it didn't dawn on me that anybody believed that crap you know but they're the people eat that shit up the fox news viewers and they believe that the government couldn't lie to them wouldn't lie to them you know and that wouldn't happen you just might you know my grandma's generation the, the government wouldn't lie to you and if it if it's printed somewhere it has to be true we live in a society that promotes ignorance over critical thinking. No wonder why it's so easy to manipulate the masses. And it's no wonder why uh, people are still religious. And the more you tell them, or the more sources they find that contradict what they're looking at, the more convinced they are. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing. We, we all do it to some extent. It, and it's extremely difficult to change your point of view. But, um, I mean, it can be done. You just have to be willing to do it. Um, but the other thing I think is important, if we want people to change their point of view, we, sh- we sh- don't necessarily need to be dicks and say, I told you so, and shame them for changing their point of view. We should actually congratulate them and say, you know, I'm really glad you changed your mind on that because, um, you know, it's important that they feel that they're welcome to do that. But if you're a dick to them, that's just going to make them double down even more. The lunatic is in my head. <laughs> the lunatic is in my head. When you mentioned the story of a uh, grandmother's generation, it reminded me of my own late mother who just voted Republican always just because... That was just the standard thing to do. And I don't know how she even formulated that opinion. She had a sixth grade education, grew up in Greece, moved to the States in the, mid, in the late 60s, and really didn't have any chance to go to high school or any trade school. Um, and it just, makes, just reminds me a lot of immigrants yeah. might have had that same experience with uh, the lack of getting that ability to critically think. Like, yeah. my mom didn't have that chance to uh, develop. At some point, somebody that she looked up to voted that way. Probably. You know what I mean? And that's the way she figured that, that she ought to do it. That's how my mom looked at it. it was my, mom, my mom was the same way. I don't know what it would take for her to vote Democratic. I, I have no idea. My dad voted for Obama, and he's a lifelong Republican. But he gets it. And he's not that kind of Republican. You can see the facts in front of you. You have to do what's right. And and certain people just don't They don't have that. It's, a, it's identity lack politics. Lack of basic education. I yeah, mean. yeah. It's the way Dad always did it, so I just need to do it, and you don't question. Yeah, we don't uh, teach critical thinking in schools anymore, um, and I think that's something that we should be promoting and doing. It's all about who has the best memes. <laughs> With the dankest memes. This is Karen Garst, the faithless feminist, author of Women vs. Religion, The Case Against Faith and for Freedom, and I Ride the Atheist Underground. Brain make people smart. Your brain is a magnificent, miraculous machine, the most supercharged computer that you have ever seen. Protected by your cranium, it hides between your ears. The stem, the cerebellum, and cerebral hemispheres. Your brain, 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 is sending and receiving. Your brain, 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 the information that you're needing. Your brain, 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 it has a lot to do. It's a crazy multitasker that works overtime for you. Say, why the hell are religious so fucking happy? Detecting trace amounts of mental activity. As it turns out, of course, there's a reason they're so happy. During religious activity, like meditation, prayer, and worship, the brain releases endorphins into the system. Much as it does, of course, in the holy trinity of self-gratification, sex and drugs and rock and and drugs and rock and and drugs and rock and roll. Atheists know that prayer doesn't work, right? It's useless, I told you! Well, yes and no. It doesn't work because no one answers. But it does work because it makes the person who's praying feel better. Studies have shown that religious belief can increase one's lifespan and help people better cope with disease, whether atheists want to admit it or not. In an article published last July in Medical News Today, author Anna Sandu 
writes about the effects of religion on the brain. Here to present a condensed version of that story is young Bobby Science. The neurophysiological effects of religious belief are scientific facts that can be accurately measured. Research in the field of neurotheology has made some surprising discoveries. Dr. Andrew Newberg explains that different religious practices have different effects on one's brain. Namely, different religions activate brain regions differently. Meditating Buddhists and Catholic nuns in prayer, for instance, have increased activity in the frontal lobes of the brain. These areas are linked with increased focus and attention in planning skills. Also, both prayer and meditation correlate with a decreased activity in the parietal lobes, which are responsible for processing temporal and spatial orientation. But other religious practices can have the opposite effect on the same brain areas. Intense Islamic prayer, which emphasizes the surrendering of oneself to God, reduces the activity in the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobes, as well as the activity in the parietal lobes. The prefrontal cortex is involved in executive control and decision-making. A recent study also found that religion activates the same reward-processing brain circuits as sex, drugs, and other addictive activities. Researchers from the University of Utah School of Medicine examined the brains of 19 young Mormons with an MRI scanner. Those who reported the most intense spiritual feelings displayed increased activity in the pleasure and reward brain areas, which are also active when we engage in sexual activities, listen to music, gamble, and take drugs. The participants also reported feelings of peace and physical warmth. These findings echo those of older studies, which found that engaging in spiritual practices raises the levels of serotonin and endorphins. Some recent advances in neuroimaging techniques allow us to understand how our brains create spiritual or mystical experience, or the feeling that someone else is present in the room, or that we've stepped outside of our bodies and into another dimension. Interestingly, a study of Vietnam veterans shows that those who had been injured in the brain's dorsolateral prefrontal cortex were more likely to report mystical experiences. In the 1990s, Dr. Michael Persinger designed what came to be known as the God Helmet, a device that is able to simulate religious experiences by stimulating an individual's temporoparietal lobes using magnetic fields. 80% of the participants felt a presence of some sort. 20 religious people in the study asserted that God himself was in the room with them. When Dr. Newberg was asked what he thought about such attempts to elicit religious experiences, he replied, We have to be careful about how similar such experiences are. He points out that humans have historically sought out various ways to evoke religious experiences, like psychedelic drugs. Whether it's psychedelics or the God Helmet, says Dr. Newberg, we may do better at figuring out how to enhance these effects. Neurotheology should also be able to help with the development of therapies to help people with various psychological disorders. Finally, neurotheology will hopefully be able to provide us with some much-needed answers to age-old questions about the nature of reality. Dr. Newberg says that historically, faith practice fulfills needs that our brains are built to have, and until we gain such answers, religion is unlikely to go anywhere. We caught up with Dr. Andrew Newberg a man of many titles. I'm the director of research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University and also a professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He explains the definition of neurotheology. The field of study that helps to find the link between religious and spiritual phenomena and the human brain. Where the word came from. The term neurotheology, which actually dates back to a book by Aldous Huxley entitled The Island, a, a futuristic novel about a, a, a group of people who were doing all kinds of interesting things, including neurotheology, although not defined. 
and when the study really started making headway. Really didn't kind of take off, I think, until about the 1990s when we started to be able to do brain imaging studies and, and look at what was going on in the brain when people were engaged in different types of practices, meditation and prayer and so forth, uh, with the goal of, again, just trying to better understand what is going on inside the brain of people when they are engaging some kind of religious or spiritual uh, phenomena, some type of practice, experience, belief. We really have a remarkable technology today to be able to explore these uh, issues in much greater detail than we ever have before. The advances in brain imaging uh, from 30 years ago or so really changed the game here, didn't they? Let's be honest. It did. Uh, you know, it, it, you, you know, part of how this all arose from my own personal perspective, I was doing some of the early research looking at just very traditional stuff, looking at Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and uh, psychiatric disorders like depression and eating disorders. And, uh, and I also got involved in trying to at least think about what was going on in the brain during practices like meditation and prayer or during certain types of spiritual experiences like mystical experiences. And uh, eventually I started, I, you know, a light bulb went off. I said, well, well, gee, if we're using brain scans to study Alzheimer's uh, and depression, why can't we use it to study religious and spiritual uh, ideas and beliefs and experiences? And there, that was really kind of the onset of it, the beginning of it. And we, uh, over the last 20, 25 years, we've scanned probably 400, 450 people doing all different kinds of practices. And, and of course, using that information to help us better understand uh, what's happening in the different parts of the brain, how they relate to various uh, aspects associated with religious and spiritual attitudes and beliefs. Now, in the article, you are quoted as saying that neurotheology might be useful in developing more effective rituals that might be of interest to, to religious communities and churches, etc., in order for them to maximize their own rituals for greater enjoyment. Doesn't this kind of take God out of the equation a little bit? Well, I don't know if it takes God out of the equation per se. I mean, what we really mean by that is that historically, uh, so much of what people do in terms of meditation or prayer, it's a bit of trial and error. I mean, people do things, and, and whether they're religious or not, you know, if, if you're an atheist, but you want to learn uh, stress management, I, you know, as a doctor, I, I can't tell you what's the right meditation practice for you. I can give you suggestions. I can tell you certain things may be more effective or less effective based on what the research shows. But we don't have a good way of really being able to help people understand the most effective ways of, of trying to get into these states or, or to, to, you know, and if you're, if you are a religious person to, to, to engage that religious aspect of your life. But through the process of neurotheology, we have an ability to say, okay, you know, what are the, when, when people go to a church, for example, they may pray, they may do communion, they may uh, sing songs. which of those are the ones that are really doing something for them and which are the ones that are most effective for them. Uh, and again, part of it also is understanding people's goals. I mean, is the goal um, to be a, a better person, a more moral person, a more compassionate person? And we can look and try to understand what are the most effective ways of doing it. So, I mean, in some ways, Yes, I mean, it takes the, the, the doctrinal element out of it per se uh, a little bit, but, but even there, I mean, if we're talking about celebrating certain holidays, um, what are the most effective ways of doing that and how, how can we try to help people who want to engage those experiences do it more effectively? You know, I totally understand wanting to be in a religious community and wanting to maximize the experience, but having a scientist come to me and show me, you know, this is how the experience happens and this is how you can make it better um to me doesn't that just kind of admit that you know this is a phenomenon that's created of our own brains and uh I, I guess that's what i mean about taking god out of it i mean i guess don't you have to admit that we know how it happens we know how it starts we know how to manipulate it mechanically basically uh so doesn't it really admit to the observer that there's there's no god here Well, you know, it's it's a very important question. I mean, it is something that in many ways, uh, you know, we, we talk about this in neurotheology as neuroepistemology. You know, how do we know what's real and how do we uh, understand that? Mm -hmm. 
you had mentioned, uh, you know, drug-induced experiences, and this is a whole other area of research which is very, very important for neurotheology for several reasons. One is is that those experiences that people have uh, with drugs like psilocybin or LSD uh, can be very, very powerful. They can be described as intensely spiritual for those individuals. From a brain perspective, what's very nice about it is that, you know, we know where these things go. We know that uh, psilocybin affects the serotonin system. So that that tells us something about, you know, what uh, how they're having that effect. But, you know, interestingly, uh, and, and, and whether this is just, you know, a way that various people can rationalize um, different ideas or different experiences. You know, if you look at, for example, shamanic cultures throughout the world, um, you know, they often have used. Uh, mushrooms, for example, um, and to have some kind of an experience. In our Western paradigm, we view that as being an artificial induction of an experience. But for those individuals who have these experiences, um, you know, again, we could get into, well, you know, where's the reality of it? But the bottom line is that they almost look at it as, you know, this is how my brain gets into a state that accesses the spiritual realm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the analogy that I sometimes think about is, uh, you know, I, I wear glasses because I don't see very well. And so when I get up in the morning, the world's a blurry place. I put my glasses on and I see the world clearly. Now, the world didn't change, but my ability to see the world change, uh, differently changed. And so, you know, uh, whether or not these drug induced states are just purely, you know, the brain manifesting these crazy experiences that, that may be wonderful experiences, as you said. Uh, or whether they somehow get the brain to see the world in a different way um, that reflects some other level of reality, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I again, I, I certainly share your perspective on the idea that many of these experiences may be brain generated. It doesn't necessarily uh, eliminate what these experiences mean for people, and um, and there are still some some ways of looking at it that might not even totally take the God uh, issue out of the question. Uh, and, and I hope that the more we do research, maybe we will get to a better answer to that question. Now, with regard to the God Helmet experiments and eliciting a spiritual experience in the laboratory, you cautioned that we need to be careful about how real these experiences become. What exactly did you mean by that? With the research that uh, Persinger has done, um, you know, part of what he has elicited, uh, you know, based on his claims, you know, our, our feelings of like a sensed presence, that there's like a presence in the room that, again, he likens to the notion that somebody has the sense that God is in the room with them, uh, certain uh, emotional responses, you know, that those are part of the kinds of experiences that people talk about when they have something spiritual happening to them, uh, when they feel like something spiritual is happening to them. Spiritual experiences are very rich and diverse, so there are a lot of different emotional processes, cognitive processes, experiential processes, and and I would think that even Persinger would admit that, that he certainly has not elicited every kind of spiritual experience that somebody can have by stimulating the brain. So, you know, some of the, 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 the visual experiences that people may have or the feelings that people may have, you know, they're they are not necessarily identical to what a more non-stimulated experience might be. Now, I mean, interestingly, going back to the drug-induced experiences, and we've done some analysis of what these experiences are, they they do have actually many more similar elements to a more naturally occurring spiritual experience in terms of the euphorias and, and the, the feelings that people have that people describe as spiritual. I, I think it's fascinating. We have to look at what all the different ways in which these experiences may occur and then see where the similarities, where the differences are. And, you know, when we talk about what's going on in the brain during them, it's not just one part of the brain that seems to be involved. There's many different parts that can be involved. And, and I think that just reflects the complexity of what these experiences are for people. Again, it, it, it just helps us to, to better understand them and try to figure them out and try to ultimately figure out where the reality is. Uh, I, I hope that we're able to do that at some point. You've said that neurotheology could be useful uh, to help with the development of therapeutic approaches to helping people with various disorders, including neurological and psychiatric conditions. I wonder, what about uh, drug addiction? A related but different approach to what Persinger did, um, you know, there's something called transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, these days, which uses magnetic fields 
Um, and people have been exploring the ability to do that, to help treat people with depression and other types of psychiatric illnesses. So, uh, you know, your question is right on the mark in the sense that there may be ways of helping to stimulate the brain. Whether it's through devices or uh, there's actually some very interesting work being done now John, down at Johns Hopkins with the uh, psychedelic drugs like, such as psilocybin to help people with depression, to help people with substance abuse. Uh, smoking, I think, uh, is another thing that they were working on. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, there is this sort of applied neurotheology that might ultimately be a very effective uh, approach to helping people. And, and again, I mean, these could, you know, we always kind of look at this from the, the global perspective that it might work very effectively for a religious individual, but it could also work very effectively for a non-religious individual. It just has to be adapted the right way. Now, what can we deduce, if anything, about atheists who just simply don't seem to enjoy this or willingly forego it or are immune to it? Uh, what's going on in our heads uh, that we can't enjoy this? And, and, and clinically, what kind of help um, you know, could this knowledge provide for a, for a non-believer? The, the short answer is that we don't fully know. Um, you know, the, the longer answer is that um, there are some interesting studies that are, are, are growing our knowledge in this area. For example, uh, there was some studies looking at uh, various genetic uh, predispositions, and uh, one study identified a gene that codes for a receptor in the brain that helps us to regulate dopamine levels. And of course, dopamine is part of the, the reward system of the brain, the part of our brain that helps us to feel good uh, and happy. And so, you know, is that a possibility? Is it possible that there are just fundamentally different levels of dopamine or different amounts of receptors in the brains of people who are more, you know, more likely to be religious than people who are not? Uh, and, and of course, I, I think there's always a continuum. I mean, there are people who are deeply religious, there are people who are deeply atheist, and then there's a whole range in the middle. Um, and so one might imagine that there are varying concentrations and, and levels with which dopamine acts within various individuals' brains. In uh, one of the most recent books I wrote uh, called The Rabbi's Brain, another uh, thought that we also talked about was not only the dopamine aspect, but also the relationship of the frontal lobes to the rest of our brain's functions. And it, there's some evidence to suggest that maybe people who are a, an atheist um, may have more active frontal lobes because our frontal lobes are part of how we you know, thinking through different things and, and, and questioning things a lot. So, you know, again, there, there may be multiple factors at work here in terms of what ultimately leads someone down a path towards being an atheist versus someone who goes down a path towards religion. Because, for example, there are people who are religious who are very analytical about the religion, um, but they still adhere to the, you know, they don't give up the religion, whereas there are other people who may be very analytical and critical of religion and ultimately come to the conclusion that it's not worth continuing to follow. So that's part of the interesting process. And and one last sort of interesting phenomenon that uh, a number of people have, have discussed at times, and I think neurotheology may ultimately have something to say about this. As a doctor, uh, I'm intrigued by the, the notion that there are people in the world who, when they are when they are confronted with some catastrophe, uh, a diagnosis of cancer or the loss of a child or a loved one, some people turn towards God and towards religion as a way of helping them to do better and to cope better with the various problems that they're now facing. Other people turn away from religion because they feel like, well, why, you know, God left me. I can't go back to that, that belief system. And again, I, you know, from a brain perspective, my question is, what is the difference in, in a person's brain who turns one way or another? And I think it's that fundamental question about where the similarities and the differences are. So we're starting to learn about it. We're starting to understand it, but it's going to, it's very complex. And, uh, and I think it, uh, it's going to take some time before we can truly understand what those differences are. Here's the big one, the chicken and the egg, right? Does, uh, does religion arise from the reward that came from early experimentation in the behavior or is the behavior innate in most humans, i.e. a gift from God, the instinct to engage in such giving rise to a repeatable, teachable system, i.e. religion? Well, uh, let's see. I guess there's a couple of parts to that question. Um, one of the questions is always uh, how inherent is this within us?
you know, what I always like to say is we're, we're kind of trapped within our brain. We're looking out at the world and we're trying to make some sense out of it. So uh, it makes sense that our brain will draw a variety of different conclusions and ideas from that, and certainly religious and spiritual ideas. Uh, you know, if we look at the history of humanity, uh, are very prominently featured. And so uh, it would seem to me that um, that our brains, to some degree, are built for these kinds of ideas and built for these kinds of connections. And I think that's where, uh, you know, most specifically when you talk about rituals, and we talked about liturgy a little while ago, you know, the idea of making this connection, making feeling connected to our group, our family, uh, to humanity, to the universe, to God, we, we are kind of constantly striving to sort of connect with something greater than the self. For some people, it is just connecting with the family or the social group, and then other people make that connection with something more social, uh, more more universal or, or even spiritual. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, why are we built that way? And, and, and you know, certainly uh, the religious individuals would say, well, you know, it's built into our brain because God put it there. Um, you know, uh, we could also look for a variety of evolutionary uh, reasons why, and um, uh, always a little difficult to know for sure exactly why that would, you know, why those um, beliefs and, and those perspectives are there. Uh, you know, from, from my perspective, looking at the brain itself, uh, again, you know, it looks like our brain is, is certainly capable of engaging these, these very esoteric concepts. And, and whether you are an atheist or whether you're a religious person, you know, the, the fundamental questions of humanity, you know, why are we here? Um, what's the nature and, you know, what's the nature of the universe? Is there meaning and purpose in the universe? What is right and what is wrong? These are these fundamental questions that we all ask. So I think that the drive to do this is within all of us. It also doesn't surprise me that given the incredible variability of our genes, the environmental exposures that we have, who we are, what we experience, you know, it never surprises me that we all come to different conclusions about the world around us. In fact, um, you know, I would always argue that there are seven billion religions in the world, so to speak. I mean, every, every person, uh, religious or not, has their own unique perspective on what it means. I mean, even even people who don't believe in religion at all, even atheists, all have a different, a slightly different perspective of what atheism means, and and you know how much you know how much we should reduce the world down to its fundamental components, how much we should trust science, uh, whether there's something else out there, uh, you know, what does supernatural mean? Um, so we all have these different perspectives on things, and and again, that to me is no surprise, given the incredible richness and diversity and the uniqueness of every person's brain in looking at these questions. Now, it's hard to argue that religion will be around for a long time. Like you say, everybody enjoys it. It's going to be around for a long time, but it is in decline. The numbers are there, especially in more educated societies. Are modern people evolving out of this through uh, self-understanding, like with the kind of work that you're doing, or are they replacing it with something else, or what's going on there? Well, you know, as you said, I mean, there there certainly has been decline of more traditional religions. Um, you know, this is something that we've talked about actually in neurotheology a little bit, the sort of the relationship between permanence and impermanence. Um, you know, how much can these uh, fairly ancient religious traditions still be relevant um, in a world uh, of the Internet and, and uh, you know, iPhones and, uh, you know, space travel and so forth. I mean, none of this was around 2000 years ago. I think people will always be asking these questions. I think we will always be striving to kind of uh, become something more than what we are and connect to something more than what we are. Uh, whether or not the existing religions will ultimately fall away and, and uh, be replaced with something different. Uh, you know, in today's world, in addition to a growing number of people who are atheists, uh, you know, part of that category might be the spiritual but not religious uh, group where they're, you know, trying to, you know, they don't believe in a religious tradition, but they, they, they like to meditate, they like to do yoga, they like to feel, you know, connected to nature, they like to, you know, feel maybe connected to something greater than just, you know, who we are uh, as individuals. And, um, and so I, I think there are a lot of possible avenues. And, and I think to some degree, neurotheology 
you know, has an opportunity to offer something like that to, to people. Um, we used to talk about uh, whether neurotheology may ultimately be what we refer to as a mega theology, you know, something that provides ideas and, and knowledge and information that would be theoretically accessible to everyone, irrespective of what their prevailing belief system is. To say, you know, this is who we are as human beings. We have a brain that strives to explore, that strives to ask questions. And as we ask those questions, we will naturally find and seek answers that will work for us today. And we will continue to develop it. It's like good science. You know, we we have the theories that work for us today. And, uh, you know, you had Newtonian physics a few hundred years ago. Now we've got, uh, you know, relativity and, and, and maybe we'll have something else, uh, you know, another 300 years from now. And it's just, uh, it's our advancement. It's our development. Um, and to some degree, religious and spiritual ideas have continued to evolve and change over time as well. And, uh, and to be honest, you know, all people are also guilty of wanting to hold on to the belief system that they have, and that includes scientists. You know, we know plenty of wonderful ideas that have been squelched and put down for a long, long time until enough data came around to support those ideas, and then a lot of times those ideas become Nobel prizes. Uh, so, uh, but until then, um, you know, sometimes people go through some pretty rotten times uh, because people are, are are putting them down and and being nasty about it. You know, scientists are human beings, and uh, scientists are every bit as nasty as, as anybody else, unfortunately. But um, uh, but hopefully, uh, you know, through those processes and through the natural evolution of humanity and, and our ideas and, and, and maybe even our brain, uh, we will get to some uh, new perspectives on the world and, and uh, new perspectives on ourselves. I, I guess uh, I'm a very idealistic person, so I'm hoping that in the end we will find a new way of, uh, of exploring who we are as human beings and, and how we make some sense out of the world and how we relate to the world. Do you like uh, space? Do you like astrophysics? Do you pay attention to what's going on out there? Uh, very much. I'm very fascinated yeah. by it. I was uh, took a lot of astrophysics classes back in college, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's uh, somehow all of this is going to come together some way, and I'm not sure exactly how, but uh, uh, no, I'm I'm deeply fascinated by by cosmology and uh, uh, you know what uh, how we think about this, and of course, it actually you know people. Again, there's sort of like this another area that isn't really religious, but is looking at consciousness and how consciousness may be associated with various quantum mechanical processes and things like that. And it's very controversial, but uh, there's some fascinating ideas out there and uh, not sure which are the ones that are ultimately going to uh, find their way into the being the, 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 the most reflective of the real reality. But uh, we got to keep exploring. Neurotheologists are the astronauts of inner space and where astrophysicists might be expected to discover clues of God in the heavens. Or on the other side of a wormhole, you search for God in the innermost reaches of the mind, a place where you're in fact much more likely to find her, in my opinion. Neuroscience may in fact, as you say, help in answering age-old epistemological questions about the nature of reality, consciousness, and spirituality. Tell us, are you going to be that guy Andrew Newberg, nice Jewish boy who <laughs> discovers or debunks God forever. I would love to be able to do that one way or another at some point. I'm a never say never kind of guy, and uh, I recognize the, the 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 great value of science, but also its limitations. I realize the value of religious and spiritual and philosophical ideas, but also their limitations. Part of my hope is that an integrative field like neurotheology may be. Uh, the avenue by which we can go down to, to get to those answers in, in very unique and exciting ways. But I, I think that it, it is a, it, it's that fundamental challenge of all of us to try to understand the nature of reality and how, how we perceive that reality. And uh, I would love to be able to contribute to that discussion. I hope that someday we can. And, uh, you know, I know uh, prior to coming on, we were just talking also about the ability to sort of think about the ways in which religious and spiritual ideas as well as science can come together. And um, and again, you know, even in the introduction to that last question, um, I think it really does come together in the human mind. It is our mind and our brain that can enable us to explore science and explore something spiritual. And so uh, coming to look at the brain itself, I think, is the way that we can best understand both those perspectives and 
Uh, and hopefully at some day, uh, if we can design the perfect study, um, we will prove or disprove uh, one of those perspectives in a way that we've never had before. And uh, if I can be the one to do it, um, that would be fantastic. Now, what do you take away from this that, that satisfies you in the, those spiritually, if you will? What do you, what do you really hope to see come from this study for, for humanity? I'm very idealistic, but I, I, I really feel, you know, part of what's been a, a, a lot of fun and also a fascination for me with the whole field of neurotheology is reaching out to people where they are. And, and so it's been uh, great to be able to talk to churches and synagogues and, and people, you know, of, of religious faiths. Uh, it's been great to talk to secular humanists and atheists. I, I've talked to radiologists and neurologists and psychiatrists and so forth. Uh, and, and I really feel like this is a way of trying to get to where people are, uh, show them where the relationship is between who they are as a, as a biological person, as a, as a mental person, as a, as a social and spiritual person, and try to figure out a way to kind of bring us all together so that we can move forward together. And I know that, uh, you know, that can be challenging, but, but ultimately just because people have different beliefs doesn't mean that we can't find a way of bringing all of humanity in a better direction. And, 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 and again, maybe uh, I hope that this also shows uh, and helps people to uh, have a little bit more compassion for people who don't always think the same way. And, uh, and I think that that's always fundamentally important as well. And, and that's, that's something that this research has really taught me, um, you know, that even if ideas seem uh, very complex uh, and, and, and way out there, um, that, uh, that, you know, it, it's important to at least understand them as best as possible and appreciate them and, and hopefully have uh, some uh, compassion and understanding for people who think differently. So I hope that this is part of uh, the legacy of what neurotheology can bring. We know you've recently published a book with Columbia Press simply titled Neurotheology. It explores the academic side, talks some about the challenges faced by the discipline and where it might go in the future. What else can people find that you've written? Um, if people are more interested in some of the specific research and studies that we've done, uh, I published a book called um, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, which certainly can have a much more secular perspective just about what enlightenment is, including the age of enlightenment, which try to take us uh, away from religion. So, uh, you know, looking at sort of how our minds and brains change over time. You know, if people have an interest on the more religious side, uh, we mentioned the rabbi's brain, which looks at uh, Judaism more specifically. And then there's also how God changes your brain, which also looks at kind of religious and spiritual experiences and uh, various practices and how they are influenced by the human brain. Get all those on Amazon, I'm sure. Yep, Amazon and uh, any other general booksellers, I guess. He's neuroscientist and author Andy Newberg. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, anytime. now with secular news and events and commentary is Jojo Vandescoop. The City Council of Portland, Oregon has recently approved a measure extending civil rights protections to atheist, agnostic, and other non-religious residents. The proposal was initiated by Portland's chapter of the Freedom from Religion Foundation. During the vote, Commissioner Chloe Udale said she identified as an agnostic. Quote, while I respect all religions, I reject intolerance towards everyone, so I'm happy to vote A, she said. A 2014 Pew Research Center study found that 31% of surveyed adults in Oregon said they were unaffiliated with any religion. And a 2015 study from the Public Religion Research Institute found that 42% of surveyed city residents said they were religiously unaffiliated. Well, no surprise in Portland, right? Yeah, so atheists are protected in the place that they need it the least. Well, that's so. how it goes. FFRF had their convention in San Francisco, and I'm like, you know, it's an easy place to make sure you make your money back. When's it going to reach Omaha and, you know, Little Rock? <laughs> Abilene, Texas. Yeehaw. It's a powerful statement for a city council member to actually identify as non-religious during a meeting. It takes a lot of bravery. <laughs> In Temecula, California, 
More than 30 atheist, humanist, and secular leaders recently met at a residence overlooking Southern Californian vineyards to discuss politics, social issues, and how to draw in more people at a first-ever SoCal Secular Leadership Summit. This was the first of three summits planned by the Secular Coalition for America. The summit included discussion groups around common interests and long breaks to encourage networking. The other summits will be held in Greenville, South Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee. Now we're talking Greenville and Nash in Nashville. That's yeah, they got the easy one out of the way first. Couple, couple of them vills right there. Wonder who the secular leader of Nashville? <laughs> Nash. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the the Nashvilles have that nanocon. I mean, there's a obviously a a decent secular. I think in those areas where there is such a religious pressure, they tend to show up. Yeah, and I think Nashville's a little bit more metropolitan than we give it credit for. Probably it's a big town and full of <laughs> plenty of, <laughs> obviously plenty of liberal thinkers. They're able to throw a really nice conference. Isn't that where Vanderbilt University is? Uh, there you go, right there. You get a college town. In Switzerland, a law recently passed prohibiting politicians and public officials from wearing religious symbols in the workplace after several years of debate. A similar prohibition was already in place for school teachers in a bid to keep education religiously neutral. Liberal politician Pierre Maudet stated after the vote, this law guarantees the neutrality of the state in religious matters and will boost social cohesion. Two thirds of the Swiss population is Roman Catholic or Protestant. Muslims make up around 5% of the population as of 2013, up substantially from 30 years earlier largely due to an influx of people from Kosovo and Turkey. So what do you think? There's that freedom of expression versus... I could see being a little bit intimidated if you're not of that religion when you're talking to like a city councilman or a mayor or something and they have a yarmulke on or a crucifix or something. I could like see that being off-putting. If you're like a member of the public who came in to... Yeah. Or if you were just dealing with them for any reason and then you're like you know especially if you're say trying to set up uh you know a room for an atheist convention or something and then the person the city council people that you're talking to are all wearing crucifixes i could see that being like a little a little iffy but here there's no way that would ever in the u.s no no (laughs) people would freak out and even i don't really think it's necessary i wouldn't necessarily fight for that i mean you know if you want to wear your cross i had to go to the school district and they're all littered with their crosses down at the office but they're just ladies wearing their damn cross jewelry you know i don't i don't really think of it that but that's smart on switzerland it just avoids it avoids conflicts you know if you're at work you're, this is what you do. Give give unto Caesar what is due Caesar. So if you're religious, leave that shit at home. You can put it back on when you get home or get a different job, Somebody I guess. Somebody wants to wear their tinfoil hat in public. I see, you know, if they want to, let them. Um, but at the same time, I can realize if you're in a political office and you are and you have other people who might have to come to you for approval, um, they might feel the need to hide their atheism or even agnosticism because they don't want to step on any toes. Um, so I think it is a smart move for them, but I also think that, you know, with that into consideration, there is bigger fish to fry. A typically clinical Swiss approach, I think, probably to life and society, you know. So kudos to them. Yeah. You can be rest assured if you go to Switzerland and you got to go to the consulate. You won't be inundated with religious paraphernalia hanging off the people's necks. But, you know, but with that also being said, it might be important to be able to identify those people who are religious because if you do want to get Put them on the train. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to get something approved um, and if you know they identify with a certain religion, you, it might be difficult to tell whether they will approve it or not. Because now you don't know. They could they go the other way and just each bureaucrat at their desk. You'd have a sign over their desk and you can pick and choose. Well, I'm going to go see the Muslim <laughs> bureaucrat instead of the Christian bureaucrat this week because they need to get a mosque approved. So, In convention news, American atheists will be hosting their 2019 national convention on April 19th through the 21st in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information on how to register for this event, visit www.aacon2019.org.
www.ohiodesert.org. That's all for Brainford. Get your keisters back on the train. Go on, skedaddle. I want to thank all our guests and make sure you do check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and pay the fare at patreon.com. Patreon.com. Look for Atheist Underground and pledge. Uh, broken Hearts again at the end of the episode here. Notre Dame uh, burns in Paris, and uh, I had to mention it before we go. It's a real shame. Uh, a thousand years almost of architecture and art, a marvel of, of human creativity. Took over a hundred years to build, and uh, and it went up in smoke. So I hope nobody's gloating over this. It's not Christianity is not the building's fault, and it's a real shame. We lose a piece of all of us when something like that happens. But uh, it does serve to remind that if God can't save Notre Dame, what the fuck is He going to do for you? Huh? Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next stop, Atheist Town. Next stop, Atheist Town. Atheist Town is next. <laughs>